Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. Dr. Chris Johnson joins the S2 Cognition Podcast today. He will be a reoccurring guest on the show as he is one of the most insightful minds I've ever had the chance to be around. He brings a ton of experience when it comes to talking about the brain and the intersection of sports. He is a PhD in cognitive neuroscience and worked for the Golden State Warriors, Navy SEALs, and most recently is the Pittsburgh Pirates Director of Player Personnel. We discussed the value of understanding cognition in baseball, the importance of player selection based on their swing decisions, why the World Series was a great reminder about why split-second decision-making matters, and how you can train to be a better decision-maker in the batter's box. That conversation and much more is next here on the S2 Cognition Podcast. Chris, I want to warmly welcome you on the S2 Cognition Podcast. We look forward to have you on more as we go throughout the year. Uh, Today, we're going to focus on the mental side of baseball, the components of baseball, specifically looking at cognition as it relates to baseball. So I know you've worked with the Warriors, you know, right before their dynasty run. You worked with Navy SEALs and observing stress, and most recently as the Pittsburgh Pirates Director of Player Personnel. So how have you observed uh, cognition showing up uh, in baseball? So it's the it's really the focus on the brain and how the brain takes in information. So the brain is the central organ of adaptation. And the tough part about it is we can't see it. And if you look at how sports in general over the last hundred years have have really been dominated by physiology. It's all the big discoveries have been in physiology. Um, if you look at the combines, you know, what's being assessed is largely physical. And that's that's in part because cognition is it's difficult to understand and it's it's really hard to see. But over the last 20 years or so, maybe 30, some of the advancements in cognitive neuroscience have allowed us a peek into how the brain is actually functioning. And so to give you an, another example, and, and really this is how I came to, to link up with S2, is most of the, the ways to assess function have been geared toward looking at people who have impairments. And by impairments, we mean either a disease, some neurodegenerative process, or a lesion, or an an injury. And the tests were designed to be sensitive to those impairments. So how do we test people who are really high functioning? And that's how I got started in this field. I, I worked with a group of really talented neuroscientists at Yale who, instead of looking at disease, they wanted to look at people who were high-functioning. And so they would study special operations forces or unique athletes who, you know, for all intents and purposes, should have some problems, whether that's exposure to stress or trauma or injury. But for some reason, they do really well. And we wanted to look at the neurobiology of that, some of the uh, structure and function of the brains of those individuals, and what what were the common mechanisms that allowed them to adapt. So that 
that logically led to some of the work we did with with the uh, Naval Special Warfare. And in particular, we wanted to find guys who could see fast. We wanted to see guys, we wanted to, you know, assess guys, um, not only at static shooting ranges, but when they were in dynamic situations where they had to make shoot, don't shoot decisions and where they had to orient to a target um, and determine whether it was a threat or not. And, and identify guys who had a unique ability to do that better than others. So this is really an assessment and selection question. And then I ended up meeting the front office uh, group from the front office of the pirates, and they wanted to know, you know, what do you do? And I, when I, when I talked to them about measuring cognitive function, sensory motor function in these operators, uh, they, they were intrigued. They wanted to know, how we measured it and what we were looking for. And then, you know, over the course of the next year, uh, we had a series of back and forths and, and then they offered me a job and said, you know, come on board. And that was the area that I did the most work in is matching what the scouts saw, what the scouts graded, and then standardized assessments through S2. And then, working with analytics and bringing all of that to the draft table in some digestible, actionable piece of information that decision makers could use on projecting a player's ability to adapt cognitively. So you would take what scouts and you were the middle guy between all these departments, essentially, if I'm understanding you, and taking all this information to make it digestible so that when you talked about this player, and really focused on the projection of a player. Because I think that's something that gets missed is it's all about projection, right? So when you think about projecting how he's going to perform and you're trying to to hypothesize or guess how he's going to perform, that's what you, you would digest all that and give it to them in that sort of format. That is exactly right. And it's a, it's a really important point because it's also probably one of the biggest sources of friction in in draft room discussions and and by friction i mean a good discussions where there's disagreement uh different perspectives on players because this the scouts are have a job to they have to evaluate now performance and they also have to evaluate future performance or that you know they call it future grade and so a lot of times when we would evaluate S2 performance, cognitive performance, they would say, well, I, I don't know, you know, this guy hits really well now, he's he's hitting lasers all over the field, you're telling me that his S2 score isn't that great, I don't, I don't see it. And so that would bring the conversation back to conceptualizing cognition as a capability and a capacity, not now performance. And some of the analysis that, that we've been, you know, doing and looking at player performance and development over the last five years, guys that we have pre-draft and we've seen them advance through the minors up to the majors, we can see clear differences in how quickly these guys develop. And the, the, the fascinating aspect of this is the biggest differences that we see are showing up at the major league level. So the, there might not even, those differences in performance might not even show up at the, at the minor league level. 
But once they're exposed to major league stuff, those differences in cognitive functioning really play out. Chris, you make a point that we we often uh, emphasize. Uh, you're evaluating talent against an inferior level of competition. And it's interesting because some of the physical tools you were talking about earlier, some of the physiological capabilities can carry the day at the lower levels. They're bigger, faster, stronger. The you know complexity of pitches, the, the movement of pitches is not quite the same. And when you're talking about these split-second cognitive skills, we're talking about millisecond-level advantages and disadvantages that become <clears throat> most visible as the demands and the complexity of performance is at its highest. And so that's exactly right. You get to the major league level, that's when you're that's when you need every millisecond level advantage. And that's when you're going to be exposed if if you have some disadvantages. That's right. We've got data now over the past five, six years to show. Top draft picks. I mean, we're, we're talking amateur talent at the far right hand side of the of the you know distribution, and even within that group, there's enough variance where some of these guys don't have a great S two profile. And what we're seeing, with without question, is a clear pattern. They might get promoted, but they don't stay or they struggle more and get sent back down when they bounce back and forth. At the same time, we're seeing guys that maybe are second or third tier draft guys, but their S2 scores are very good and they are outperforming expectations. So here's here's the other aspect of this, and that is I think it's important to highlight what cognitive functioning really doesn't predict um, you know in in the in the world of cognitive analysis we call this a pertinent negative so tell me what you see and it's also just as important to say what you don't see and with cognitive functioning um, you know cognitive functioning doesn't account for athleticism it also doesn't account for strength and so you know we these cognitive assessments don't predict as well things like, power or athleticism. So, you know, you could have somebody with an elite S2 profile that might not have any business playing baseball or might not have much of a future. But, um, and that, that has to do largely with whether or not they have the body to, to perform at that level or whether they have the strength. And so that's, that's an oversimplified example, but um, and, and we're we're seeing those numbers, and I think what's affirming in that is um, we're not suggesting that S two accounts for everything. But in an industry where everyone's looking at the same numbers, everyone's trying to eke out an advantage in the margins. What we're getting at is what I talked about in the intro, and that is we're able to start seeing things that people don't normally see. And in terms of capacity, that's really valuable. So, you know, when I was with the Pirates, we we really emphasized, um, you know, finding, we, we called it finding value before the rest of the industry does. And for 
smaller payroll teams, that's really important. And if you're looking at the same numbers that everybody else is, it's really tough to find value before everybody does. And, and you know, the way, the way baseball now typically analyzes things, again, this is a generalization, but there's a hesitancy to measure and put stock in things that you can't see. And so if it's in your face and you're watching it, it's really hard to ignore. If a guy's hitting, you know, 480 foot bombs during batting practice, that's really hard to ignore. But we know that that's not the best predictor, you know. Um, but if you're if you're talking about, well, we want to know how well this guy's going to hit curveballs at the major league level. So baseball will look at how well he hits curveballs, which. You know, it, predictably, that is a smart thing to do. But there's some big uh, sources of information that are not seen typically, and and cognitive function is just one way to get an additional uh, an additional predictor into how they're going to do. Absolutely fascinating. I want to stay on the the trend that you're talking about. Some of these findings that you've been able to look at, right? When you talk about um, the cognitive function, the swing and miss stuff. I don't know. I, I'd love to hear any other findings that you're seeing that relates to cognition and what it looks like for major league versus minor league level players. Yeah. So one of the big ones and uh, is time perception. And, and I've always, I'm, just from a research perspective, before I started working in sports, I was with a group in San Diego where we were looking at how does the brain actually function in individuals who are already elite? So we looked at, you know, uh, special operations or elite adventure racers, and we found regions of the brain uh, responsible for connection and communication with the rest of the body. It functioned differently in these people. They had a different sense of time and their ability to sense time, perceive time. So, you know, one, one example, you know, elite, elite adventure racers, they had a better understanding of what their heart rate was or their ability to feel what's going on in their body. And that's just one example of where you see it. So what would an, what would an advantage in time perception look like for baseball? Well, ask any hitting coach and they'll tell you hitting's about timing. Ask any pitching coach and they'll tell you your primary job is to disrupt timing. So we know enough about the brain's time perception abilities where we can measure it. And that's, uh, you know, a couple of the S2 uh, factors measure that. There's rhythm control. There's timing control. There's a little bit in that uh, with perception speed. So we see that with guys who are able to adjust from fastball to changeup or fastball to breaking pitch. To give you an example, guys with lower S2 scores, they have a higher percentage of strikeouts with breaking pitches. And and that is just you know evidence of they have a little more difficulty shifting back and forth between, you know, fastballs and things that are nonlinear and and uh, variable in time. And so it, it, it's, it makes sense. Um, it doesn't mean they're bad. They're just not as good as, as uh, the guys who have a gift. It's a gift of being able to make those adjustments. And those adjustments, Chris, I mean, you're, you're spot on. 
we're, we're talking about a few tens of milliseconds is the difference between fouling one off, missing one. I mean, 51 thousandths of a second and you're way out in front. You're going to, the bat's not going to make contact. And that timing control measure you, you, you just referenced across several different analytic uh, efforts we've, we've conducted is, is a predictor of swing and miss. And it makes sense. It's, it's not the only factor in a swing and miss, but it's, you know, the, the wind decision that comes down from the brain that tells the, the swing to start, to go, is, uh, is critically involved in contributing to your success at uh, bat-to-ball contact. No question. And I think the, the wind decision, I, I, and I like that, the, and you're talking about the W-H-E-N, not the W-I-N, but the related. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, That's right. Thanks for that clarification. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what, and I think most people are intrigued by this topic. I mean, neuroscience and, and brain science in general, most people find fascinating, but um, to give you an idea of some of the complexity that is really just amazing. So, and you, and Scott, you know this, I mean, it, it's when the brain perceives information, it's, it's going through a series of question and answer like when, so when a batter's in the box and he's looking at a pitch and it's coming, the brain says, okay, what is this? What am I seeing? So there's a recognition aspect of this. And then you draw in some working memory and it says, okay, where have I seen this before? What history in my, you know, dictionary of pitches can I draw from and say, this looks like that. And then it says, what happened the last time I saw that? And that's happening in about 300 milliseconds. So it really is amazing. Yeah, yeah. And inserted into that is, I recognize this pitch. I reconcile that with my my memory dictionary. Yeah. Where is it going to go? Because you yeah. have to know where it is in order to uh, apply the bat at the right path to achieve contact. That's it's a spatial temporal decision. The when yes. and the where are computed on the basis of exactly what you just described. And worth underscoring, a lot of a lot of people don't understand. We're not talking about vision. Yeah, vision really stops the minute those light waves leave the retina. And it goes into the brain. That's where perception starts. So once you move from sensation, which is vision or visual acuity or clarity, and you you get into perception, then it's all the brain. And yeah. that's really where the differences are. And you, you guys have, you alluded to it, but I really want to stay on it because you talked about when an elite player understands his or her timing, right? They have this great sense of timing. Can we talk about the zone and what it feels like uh, What when an athlete is in the zone? I, I really want to stick to this. An elite athlete, when he or her is in, they're feeling it. Everything slows down. I'd love CJ, Scott, both of you guys to kind of de- deconstruct that and then reconstruct what our understanding is about the zone. A couple of uh, sort of foundational pieces when we talk about this. And so we're, we're not talking about 
to clarify, we're not talking about the strike zone, but, but related uh, being in the zone would be would have something to do with your your feel for what the strike zone is, and some of that is you have to adjust based on what the umpire is calling. So that said, the lack of awareness that you have is actually a benefit. And so baseball is such a, a grind, a daily grind and self-discipline. But when it comes to those moments where you're talking about being at peak performance, it's really not a try harder issue. Uh, it, it is a relaxed issue. The best analogy I have seen is if you've ever turned on your faucet at the sink full blast and seen the, you know, sort of the, the, the foamy spray that comes out, if you back it off just a little bit, then you're going to get a crystal clear cylinder without any disruption in it that comes out. And that is flow. And again, this is part art, part science now, um, you know, People have been trying to study flow and uh, for a long time, and um, I would say if you try to get into it, you're probably not in it. <laughs> and uh, the, the guys who, um, after they're done, you know, performing, they're not analyzing their performance. They are performing. You know, I, probably the most impressive thing I've ever seen. Um, was Clay Thompson's 37 points in one quarter. And, you know, you, you ask him, okay, man, what, you know, over the course of 12 minutes. So this is, a, this wasn't an instant of right. peak performance. This was over 12 minutes. What, you know, what was going through your mind? And you get the classic, I don't know. I wasn't in my mind. I wasn't in my mind. <laughs> I'm not thinking about it. And so, there are tools, there's probably a variety of tools that people try and use, um, but it's it's that ability to adjust to what we call perturbations or disruptions and not judge or evaluate how you're doing it or how you're doing. Yeah, this, man, we could talk about this for a while because I think there's a lot of there's a con a lot of concepts about the zone that that are pretty interesting, right? Because can you be in the zone and perform poorly? I don't think anybody would say, "Man, I was in the zone, but I was missing every shot," or <laughs> "I was striking." So, you know, by definition, the zone means your performance is leading to positive outcomes, successful outcomes, and so can you be out of the zone and still have success or positive outcomes? I mean, it gets a little, it gets a little dicey and, you know, some of the, the, the definitions start to bump into each other a little bit. You know, I've also heard the zone, Hey, you can't think. And that's, you know, and it used to be maybe 10, 15 years ago. Oh, you can't use your frontal lobes. You can't use your executive systems and you, you know, you got to use your, your very rudimentary basic processing systems. And that always never made sense to me because you can't just turn off parts of your brain like a light switch. Now, certainly there's circuits in the brain that come on and off and with different right. situations, but it, it is the way in the zone that perhaps athletes are configuring their system, right? And so they're not 
overly utilizing and engaging these control systems that are micromanaging their movements, their actions, overthinking situations. So there is something to be said about, you know, we've asked this question, hey, when you're at your best, like you ask Clay, you ask golfers, you, when you're shooting your best, what are you thinking about? And it's either that, yeah, I'm not sure. Or what I've often heard is, man, I just see it and I do it. And so they're focusing on the effect of their action. It's like there's no interference from overthinking things or inter, inter, introducing or interjecting these extra thoughts or extra control processes. They're just letting that their behavior be governed by their some of these automatic processes, but they're still able to adjust yes. and be flexible. And to use the term CJ, you use they're adapting. They're still Clay Thompson just didn't have open shots when he's in the, he was adapting and adjusting and guys were getting in his face and trying to disrupt that, but he was able to maintain some level of control and flexibility. And yet he was probably just, Hey, see the hoop, let it fly. And yeah, uh, what I thought was most impressive about that performance was, like I said, over the twelve minute span, there were there were timeouts and and uh, stoppages in play where he had time to take it in and all of a sudden become aware of where he was and what he was doing and still continue. And so, um, it, you know, it, whether it was going to the free throw line or a, a timeout, but here's here's something really important too, and we all want to know how people do what they do when it's at the elite level. Here's something to know about the brains of experts, how experts think and high performers think. They know way more than they can articulate. And so anytime we ask an expert scout or an expert performer or an expert in any field why something is the way it is, we're going to get a very incomplete answer. And we have to, in the back of our head, realize that they know way more than they can explain. And that's in part because language is limited, in part because there are things going on, as Scott indicated, that we're unaware of and that we don't know. And so we're, we are really just getting the, the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Some of these processes are happening so fast, the human brain does not have direct access to these processes. That's what you're talking about. And, and so we can't articulate things that we can't, like, I don't know when my reactions are 12 milliseconds slower or faster than the one before. I mean, that's, it's too fast. We don't, we don't have a monitor that capable of picking up those little subtle, but you know, when you're, I mean, you feel it when you're, I should, a, a tick earlier, a tick late on that fastball that's coming at you. It's, so you, you're aware of it, but you couldn't pinpoint precise numbers with it. So this is a great distinction between sensation to perception to attention. And so to, to give a, a static example, so the old Russian neuropsychologist uh, Luria he identified over a million different hues that the, the human brain could perceive. And so we know that the, the brain can see all of these subtle differences, 
but we don't have names for all those colors. And if you're like me, you just, I mean, you just call them all brown. They're brown. But the, over, over a Even million. Even the blue ones are brown colors. to you. <laughs> right. So that, and that's a static example of, of the differences in the resolution in perception that, that the, the brain can detect that we just can't describe. This is really interesting because, you know, you actually took us right to the next set of questions I'm really intrigued to go through. And that is when pressure's at its highest, right? The World Series just ended, Phillies versus Astros. You're talking about, we're talking about elite performers at the highest Mm -hmm. level for nine innings in that last game. People are holding on every pitch, breaths are being held. The attention to each pitch dramatically increases as, as we go to the World Series. How does cognition show up when we add pressure like this, outside pressure? First, I'll say it's nonlinear. So there's an aspect of pressure that from a a cognitive functional standpoint, we know improves performance. And that's different in everyone. There are individual differences in terms of how stress is perceived and how it impacts us. So First is it that it is nonlinear because after a certain point, stress starts to become a detriment and that's a different point for everyone. So the other piece of this is, okay, so what makes something stressful? Well, it, it, it is largely individual, but we know there are three common denominators. One is if, if the situation's novel. If you've never seen it, never been in that situation before, have never even thought of it, that adds to stress. If it's perceived as uncontrollable, something that's happening that you don't have any way to control. And then the third part is, is it unpredictable? So when all those three are pegged out or redlined at at the 10 level, then that's going to make something stressful. So time perception changes under stress. Under extreme stress, you'll get what's called time dilation. So things can appear to be moving in slow motion. You can also get some auditory occlusion under extreme stress where you're not hearing things, which is always fascinating. You know, you've got 50,000 people in the seats uh, screaming and you, you, you can listen to athletes talk about, I didn't, I didn't hear it. Uh, I didn't hear any of it. And that, under that degree of stress, um, there is some occlusion of that sensation. Um, you also get some visual narrowing. Uh, you, your attention and focus can get dialed in. So that, that can help performance. Where it hinders it is if you become tense and your decision-making becomes automatic and you tend to make decisions quickly or instinctively and your ability to adjust goes downhill pretty quickly and that's that's not to get into a whole you know neurophysiology lecture but there are a series of hormones that are neurotransmitters that are released that have a particularly unique effect on the front part of the brain the frontal lobe and those are called catecholamines and they have a differential effect on your ability to attend and select and switch and sustain attention. When I hear that, and Scott, I want to throw this to you because this is fascinating. So let's take our task, right? One of the measures we measure in baseball is impulse control. When you're adding all of these things, 
pressure, whatever pressures you want to add them in the, the stress categories. What happens to that, to that impulse controls the pressures build, Scott? Yeah, you know, I think Chris actually identified kind of some of the underlying processes. So let's first kind of define what we're talking about here. So let's take it from the standpoint of a hitter. Every pitch out of the hand, unless you're 3-0 count and you're, you know you're taken before the pitch even is released, every pitch out of the hand creates an impulse to swing. Uh, as, as Chris described earlier, as soon as that, even before the ball is released, but certainly as soon as the ball is released, the brain is picking up, the eyes are picking up details, transmitting it to the brain. The brain's trying to recognize what pitch is this. Well, it's, it's not like the brain is this serial processor where it just finish, it makes the decision about what it is. And then it says, okay, now let's communicate with the motor system so we can get the swing ready. Information is feeding forward to the motor system because the motor system needs to know as soon and as quickly as possible what potential bat path and swing command am I going to have to produce to deal with this pitch. So if the pitch comes out at a high trajectory, the brain, the motor system has to start organizing the commands to get a bat path to deal with that pitch. And so every pitch is creating this impulse to swing that really is manifesting in this activation of this swing command and this swing decision. Now we hold that in check while we, we're, we're getting conclusive information about, is this a pitch I want? Am I sitting on this? Is it going where I want it? Is it, is it in my damage zone? All of these split-second calculations are being weighed and ultimately determine whether you continue that swing and let that swing go to completion or whether you hold back. That's an impulse in the brain. And we know that some brains are really good at holding back these strong activations of impulses, motor impulses, impulses to act. And other brains not as proficient. And so they're, they're closer to that red line. And so, I mean, when does pressure, I mean, there's a reason why chase rates go up with two strikes. Yeah. There's a reason why low impulse control predicts higher chase rates generally, even in earlier counts or in hitter counts, we've seen low chase rates contribute to predicting who's at risk for chasing when you would you would think, hey, there's no benefit to chasing a pitch because you're in a you're in a hitter's count. You you know what, Scott? Um, along with the um, the impulse control, one of the things that we found in some of our fMRI studies was elite cognitive function has more finely tuned error detection. So there's less overcorrection, and what that looks like in in a performance setting might be. You know, imagine if you're driving uh, at a high speed and you, you lose control, someone with suboptimal cognitive function is going to overcorrect and their, their corrections are going to be um, larger and not as precise. Or, you know, if, if, you're, if you're on a surfboard, the elite surfers are making these minor adjustments between what they think is going to happen and what happens. And so their corrections are... In a, in a narrower range and faster than uh, people who don't feel or see as, as, you know, as quickly or as finely. 
you know, understanding how this impulse control works is also forms the basis for our recommended strategy for training to not chase pitches. And in understanding how impulses work, you've got the strength of the initial impulse. And then you've got this corrective, you know, shutting down that impulse, holding that back. You can train those two systems. And so ultimately, I mean, look, if you're sitting on the outer part of the plate and you get a ball just off the black, that's going to activate a really strong impulse to want to go after that pitch. You know, if they throw it three feet over your head, that that's not as strong as an impulse. High fastballs and they're, you know. Lots of reasons visually and and rhetorically that have been uh, used to explain why high fastballs, you know, are so alluring and so appealing. But there's a strong impulse to go after those. And so you can train your brain in such a way that the impulse to go after a specific pitch, if you do the training right, is weakened. And the brain's ability to automatically shut down when it sees that pitch is strengthened. And so you can weaken the impulse and strengthen the control over the impulse. And that is exactly what our S2 training using these tried and true cognitive principles. And we don't train, Chris, I'd love your come. We don't train taking. We don't train laying off and, and uh, shutting down on pitches. We train go, 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 swing, swing, swing. But this is a whole new aspect of performance that could make very selective disciplined hitters by training the, the go and the and the stop or the take. Yeah, that I mean that's that's huge and, and it also gives you some some additional respect for the guys who can hit for contact and hit for power because there's a clear trade-off. They, um, you know, and, and if you're if you're a contact guy um, probably not going to hit for as much power. And, and the guys with a lot of power, you know, they strike out more. We know that. But there are the elite hitters do it all well. And the Griffies, the Bonds. <laughs> I mean, they just have – they got special systems allowed us allow them to, uh, to have more degrees of freedom. They can high contact, swing when they want, but they're selective. It's, it's unbelievable the way that they can uh, control their systems. Yeah. Right. And, and CJ, so, you know, that gets into the, one of the last questions I want to ask you today before we get into our, our next part is most of our listeners are parents of kids that play sport, you know, coaches at the youth level, college level, professional level, executive and decision makers, you know, and matter of fact, we just had Joe Dillon on the hitting coach of the Washington nationals, the hitting coordinator. And we asked him this question and I'm very curious as to your answer what is the value of knowing your players, you know, swing decisions or what we call cognition? What's the value to knowing that? I'm a big proponent of uh, strength, strength-based development. And one of the things that I, I've seen parents get really wrapped up into is, you know, okay, let's find out what they don't do well. And then we're going to, you know, we're going to backfill all those deficits. And it conceptually, it makes sense, but there's a there's a motivational component to this especially with developing kids that if they're not enjoying it then uh at an early age you're you're really working against yourself and so strength based training is a great way 
to utilize what an S2 profile might give you. And that is, what do I do well? What am I really good at? And then emphasize that and let them lean on that because it gets harder. And, you know, you'll hear guys advancing through the minors and they'll say, look, I just have to lean on what got me here. They can't completely change direction and say, I'm just going to focus on everything I don't do well. Some got, I mean, that'll, that'll spin you sideways real fast. Um, so for kids and parents, it's look at what you do well, lean on that, and then slowly integrate some of these things that are new or maybe you feel like you've got less control of and integrate those into what you already do well. But it all starts with knowing what those are. We, uh, we've already alluded to this. If you have a lot of high-level, high-performing cognitive skills, that affords a lot of advantage because it just gives you that adaptability across more situations and more, uh, more demands. But Chris, I'm curious, there's going to be cognitive styles just like there's physical styles. In learning what kind of your strengths and weaknesses at a younger age and the kind of hitter you should be and, and are probably going to struggle to be if you keep training that way. I mean, tell us a little bit about how you think cognitive styles can, can help shape and help young athletes uh, take a path that's going to lead to better success. I go back to what what is the what is the intrinsic motivation for playing the game and and training. I mean, um, you know, I spent a lot of time with Clint Hurdle and he always wanted to know why is this guy playing? And if it's, uh, if there's not a genuine understanding of that, and I, I would sit at the, at, at the table and talk to, you know, parents of draft prospects and say, and, and this is where we move from science to the, the social component. And that is you, you have to know, who you are and what you're all about, because especially in this sport, you're going to hit, get hit with tons of failure. And so in terms of cognitive styles, if you're constantly internal and your focus is internal and what's going on with you and uh, you have a tough time looking at what you do well and you're constantly evaluating and uh, critiquing and judging your own performance there's an aspect of that that becomes counterproductive and the really adaptive guys uh, find a way to balance that and they perceive things differently. Uh, just, just in terms of perception, let me give you a, a really great example um, from this was, you know, work done on how, how does a, how does perception change something like stress? Well, you know, the, the, the classic experiment, this is Richard Lazarus up at Stanford, and he, he looked at perceptions of mass casualty scenes and people's anxiety in, in looking at those scenes. And they studied, you know, 100 or so people looking at those and they got their, their subjective responses to it. Then you take another group of people and before they're exposed to those scenes, they are. They go through a 10-minute preparation for putting themselves in the mindset of a first responder or an ER doc and how they would respond to this. And lo and behold, the perceptions are different because they're coming at it from a different frame. One's internal, the other's external. 
it's it's a an oversimplification, but it, it shows you the power of how those perceptions can change, and that that applies to kids who are developing and performing. Mindset matters. That's exactly right, CJ. Anything to promote? Anything you want to talk about real quickly before we get into the last segment? No, I don't. I don't have anything. No, nothing specific. Nothing specific, just that you're a great guy, and we love we love chatting with you. <laughs> well, sure, that depends on who you ask. You know, um, <laughs> I'd love to dive into it a later time. Clay getting into that zone, I, that was so fun to explore. Um, yeah. The next piece of this that we do at the end of the podcast is three random and funny questions that will have absolutely nothing to do with what we just spent forty five minutes talking about. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Go. What is the most ridiculous fact that you know? And being a doctor, I'm sure there are plenty. The most ridiculous fact. Okay. So if you made a scale model of the solar system and you made uh, an orange to represent the earth, a grape would then be uh, the moon and the sun would be twice the size what the earth is now. Oh, that's the my relationship. Gosh. So it is the, uh, you take an orange to something twice the size of the earth. That's the same relationship as the earth to the sun. Holy cow. I'm a visual yeah. person. So you just really, yeah, I'd say that's ridiculous and you lost the solar fact. system, but man, that's, that's pretty wild. Holy cow. <laughs> I'd say the, probably, uh, the good dad joke that, that follows that is, um, oh, no. did you know that the seventh planet in our solar system is a gas giant? <laughs> I'm going to steal that. That's great. Uh, in one or two sentences, how would you describe the internet to someone who has never heard of it? Pathways for multidirectional communication. That was extremely simple. <laughs> I really like it. Yeah, it, so it's it's actually a model that uh, is running somewhere in the back of my mind all the time. One of the big discoveries we've had in neuroscience within the last 15 years is moving from a concept of the brain and cognition that is based on regional specificity in the brain. So we, you know, we we think, and and there's some truth to this that. Each region of the brain does a unique thing, and that's where, you know, this is where memory happens, and this is where attention happens, and this is where language and vision. Well, thanks to being able to track white matter fiber connections, we're now learning that the most important piece is the connections, the networks in between these regions. And we can see those now. We can see them structurally, and we can, we can monitor them functionally. All I thought of, this is the difference between two doctors and, and myself, is my, my brain immediately went to that State Farm commercial. And he's like, oh, everything's true on the internet, right? That's <laughs> I know you like to board. So being a SoCal dude, have you ever taken a nasty fall in public? And if so, what was it like? I'm not anywhere near as good on a board. So I, I really haven't had any bad falls. Um, it's a victory if I just get up. Um, <laughs> so. The, uh, but I have, I have certainly taken some bad falls. Um, and you know, once you get over that 50 year mark, um, you slow down a lot. So you have less of those, but, um, my, my big bugaboo was, uh, just really bad ankles. And, uh, so yeah, 
I tell people that's why I don't jump so high anymore. My ankles are bad. <laughs> you got them weak ankles. Well, CJ, man, we really appreciate you coming in and talking all things cognition, your experience in the World Series, what we're seeing off that when pressure comes in, man. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure and can't wait to have you on again. Happy to, happy to join you guys.